welcome to episode 15 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogy's weekly podcast. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Carolyn Neelachlan. The spring breezes are blowing and I am full to the brim with delicious pasta salad. So let's get to it. Last week's episode was pretty spontaneous, which is not my usual mode. I am fairly obsessive as a planner when it comes to my work, but I'm back in stride and ready to take on not just one, but two topics in one episode, treeing versus shrubbing and the Golden State Killer versus Jed Match. Oh, and that question about forming community for us all to meet on one platform, I knuckled under to inevitability, and we now have a Facebook group. I'll give you the deets at the end of the episode. The latest notice from the Department of Humble Brag is a Lulu. We just blew past the 2000 download mark since this podcast started a little over five months ago. What? That's crazy talk. 44 out of 50 states are listening in the US and 18 countries across the world are tuning in. It would seem that there are at least 200 individual human beings out there listening on the regular with a few strays popping in occasionally, but I only have six paying patrons, so I'll be up front. Would everyone listening right now support the podcast financially on a monthly basis? Discounting hours of prep time, each episode is roughly 25 minutes long. I charge $50 per hour to teach. So every month, you, my zesty listener, get about $100 in lessons when you listen to From Paper to People. And you can replay each episode as often as you want while wearing your jammies or on your commute. You never have to show up to a classroom. I call that a deal. You can support the podcast on a monthly basis from five US dollars to twenty five US dollars per month at patreon.com slash ancestors alive. There are some cool prizes attached. Be a root for five US dollars a month and enter a yearly drawing at the end of May for a podcast interview about your own research. Be a branch for ten US dollars a month and enter a biannual drawing in June and December also for a podcast interview. Be a leaf for 15 US dollars a month and enter quarterly drawings in January, April, July, and October for research on ancestry and a podcast interview or a tree reveal. Be a blossom for 20 US dollars a month and you're entered in a twice yearly lottery in March and September for free ancestry tree research and a tree reveal or interview episode on the podcast. And best of all, for 25 US dollars a month, you can be a trunk. At that level, I give you that ancestry tree research and podcast interview or tree reveal because hey, you're a trunk. I just give it to you. And if you want to give a one-time gift to the podcast, you can do that by using PayPal from my website, AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com. Am I asking you for money? Yeah, but I'm delivering value. I would like to make this my main job in life, and I need your help to do that. 2018 establishes whether I can afford to keep producing the podcast or whether it was a nice idea while it lasted. If you value the lessons and the snark, please head over to Patreon and sign up as a sustainer today. 
Now back to regular order. I'm going to be a bit extra today. Unlike usual, I'm going to be looking at two issues, one to which I've referred for months now, and another that just came up a few days ago in the news. First, we'll be talking basics about the whys and hows of shrubbing. Then we'll take a quick look at some of the most fundamental questions raised by the Golden State Killer and GEDmatch.com and how not to be a Jeffrey about it. So for months here on the podcast, I have referred to shrubbing, but we haven't really talked about it in depth. It's another term I made up when I was trying to come up with a graphic depiction of a style of research when I was first teaching. The major point is this. In a pedigree chart, people go straight backwards. They only see and record parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on. They don't really look past their own direct ancestors. They just tree. That's fine, I guess, but it doesn't really get the job done. When I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and got involved with genealogy there, as opposed to the prior work I'd done on my own, I felt like the approach was simplistic. First, it made the work decidedly boring, because it limited the scope of the research, treeing. But secondly, it struck me that the only method being taught was one that said, these people who had kids are valuable, but everybody else, meh, they can just jump in a lake. Being a person who has no children and who has single or childless aunts, uncles, cousins, and so forth, that really got under my skin because they and I deserve to be remembered and made part of the family tree too, even if we'll never be anybody's direct ancestors. It also struck me that in family search, supposedly a one world tree with a one-to-one relationship between each person in the tree and each person who lived on earth, nobody was bothering to connect up brothers and sisters a few generations back thus letting families hover incomplete with duplicates dangling everywhere. Instead, a few people at FamilySearch and in the wider community that uses FamilySearch had done some work extracting data out of records without tying that data to anyone who was already there in the tree. And FamilySearch became laden with multiple versions of individual people. But there were no connections between family members where there needed to be. And that, my friends, was not helpful. Those multiples all had to be merged, connected to the correct parents, correct children, correct spouses, and so forth. The family search tree is enormously splintered because of that, and it is an ongoing problem. So I sought a solution. It turns out that the nature of the work as I was already performing it, first from books and family lore, and later using Path 5 and Family Tree Maker with document CDs, and finally with Ancestry, was the solution to the problem. As I indicated in episode 12, to find complete information on Melba Toast and her parents, we had to examine a variety of documents for Melba herself. But most families have more than one child. So to find the maiden name of a mother or the full name of a father or the names of all possible mothers for a family of children and to make sure that one's tree is right, one must shrub. Shrubbing is the act of building out sideways, then down, then back a generation, then sideways again, then down again, 
and so on. It's repetitive, it's detailed, and it makes an enormous tree, but it absolutely solves the problem of finding parents' names for children, maiden names for mothers, and it can also resolve issues that researchers don't know they have, like providing names of children who were alive for one census, but who died before the next census. In my church, it is extremely important that we keep our families named and together for eternity, so shrubbing is essential not only to successful genealogy, but to successful LDS genealogy. I'll give you an example of a shrubbing incident in a tree that I'm working on right now. I've been battling backward very slowly on a family from Georgia. I had Al Collier, a 20th century person, in place, and I sought his parents. I was forced to use another ancestry tree as a guide, and you know how I hate that, because all I had in terms of records for him were the 1940 census and a death record. I knew that Al's surname was his mother's surname from Al's death record. And in the 1940 census, Al was living with his Collier grandparents, his mother's parents. His dad's family was currently missing in action, so I set them aside. But I could go backwards on his mom's line. So jumping over Al's mom, since she wasn't in the household in 1940, I had Al's grandfather, Dave Collier, and Dave's wife, Hattie, no maiden name. I was working with a black family in a small town in Georgia, so the family's generations were fairly easy to trace. I also found Dave Collier, born right after emancipation, on the 1930, 1920, 1910, and 1900 census records, and from those, I was able to fill in Al's mother's name, Rosa May. Dave Collier had a long stream of children, 18, in fact, starting in 1897. But from the census records, it became clear that Hattie could not have been Dave's only wife. She was only born in 1894, which was only three years before her husband's eldest child was born as well. Dave also had a wife named Mary who appeared on the 1900, 1910, and 1920 census records. It was definitely the same family, and it was not a handwriting error on three separate censuses that gave Dave two different wives. I needed to establish Mary's maiden name and her estimated death date at least in order to establish whether Hattie or Mary was Rosa May Collier's mother. All of the ancestry trees I'd seen said that Hattie was Rosa May's mother, and she could have been because Hattie was 17 at the time of Rosa May's birth, but naturally, distrusting other people's research, I believed that to be crap. And I was right. By adding all of the children from all of the census records to the tree and working all of the records for all 18 children of Dave Collier, from both of his marriages, I was able to find death records that showed their parents' respective names, and Mary's maiden name came up as Williams. From there, I was able to find a marriage certificate for Dave Collier and Mary Williams, so I had a marriage date. Hattie's appearance in 1930 on the census, Hattie's age, and the spacing of the three youngest children after their elder siblings 
indicated an estimated death date for Mary Williams Collier, and that gave me an estimated marriage date for Hattie and Dave Collier. I wanted Hattie's maiden name, but Ancestry provided no easy hints for those last three children, aside from the 1930 and 1940 censuses. Brief spyglass searches on Ancestry turned up a few public records listings, so I used the towns shown in most recent records and turned to outside sources. Using a paid service I love called Bin Verified, which is an online white pages with lots of bells and whistles, I looked up those last three children to find death dates. This gave me the death date on one of Dave and Hattie's children, so I added it to his ancestry profile in hopes of turning up Social Security records. Nothing's turned up yet, but it's another layer of data awaiting more records to be indexed as time goes on. The most important thing that this exercise did was simple, yet it was crucial. It allowed me to establish who Al Collier's natural grandmother was. Al's mother was Rosa May. Other people's trees said that Rosa May's mother was Hattie. Hattie was 17 at the time of Rosa May's birth, which was entirely possible, but the unbroken stream of almost yearly births prior to Rosa May made Hattie an unlikely choice as Rosa May's mom. Working all census records applicable to Rosa May's father, Dave, showed that he had been married twice consecutively. Shrubbing all children of both of Dave Collier's marriages showed that his first wife bore 15 children and died, soon after which Dave married a much younger woman and had three more children before he too died. Hattie raised Al Collier's mom, Rosa May, but Hattie was Rosa May Collier's stepmother, not her mother. I had to shrub out to work every one of those 18 children and step out of ancestry to try to find some 20th century folks who had died in the late 20th or early 21st century in order to establish the facts and get the ball rolling on a maiden name yet to be discovered. This is why I shrub. Some of the children of Dave and Mary Williams Collier never married, so when I take them over to family search, they will be with their family, that is important. And the true identities of related persons has been sussed out in ancestry because I put in my due diligence. That is important. Ancestry is a workspace where we can make mistakes and then get it right before exporting our work to programs that make fan charts for framing or for family history books or for simply exporting proof over to Family Search to straighten up a one-world family tree sorely in need of pruning. We'll talk more about shrubbing in future podcasts, though. Now, I want to break format and take on a second topic of the week because, wow, did we ever have some genealogy in the news. I'm talking, of course, about Jed Match and the Golden State Killer. In case you don't know what happened, here's the story. The Golden State Killer is a multiple crime offender in California who committed a range of nonviolent and violent felonies between 1974 and 1986. He left DNA evidence at the scene of at least one of his crimes, but the police were never able to identify him. 
police finally got creative and frankly did exactly what I would have done if I were in prosecution. They tested the Golden State Killer's DNA, as it had been left at one of the scenes, then uploaded the results file to GEDmatch.com, a free-use website that allows people to compare their DNA to all other GEDmatch users, regardless of the platform that they initially tested on. In so doing, police found some near relatives of the person who left the DNA at the scene and were able to triangulate to the identity of the suspect, Joseph James D'Angelo, a former policeman. Now, there has been a lot of back and forth, a lot of fear, and a lot of self-righteous fervor in the wake of this arrest and the discovery of the methodology behind it. Facebook has been filled with arguments, bloggers have been posturing, and Twitter has been ablaze with hashtags like Golden State Killer, Jedmatch, POC Genealogy, and Black Progen. The last one belongs to an organization of black genealogists I admire very much, and the final word belongs to one of their members, but I have a few points to make first. As a white person in the United States, a member of majority culture, I do not feel endangered by putting my DNA up on GEDmatch, nor by being identifiable with it by name. In fact, I didn't have any qualms whatsoever initially when I heard about this method. It would have been the thing that I had done. I mean, if I had been given this task, find information, the first thing I would have done would have been to say, hey, let's test that DNA and put it up on GEDmatch because the tool is there. It makes sense to me. I wouldn't have perceived any risk to myself or anybody else because I have privilege and I am blind. The kits that I manage, they all answer back to me but are listed only under initials so their owners are not personally identifiable. No one else I manage can be identified. I have no fear of anyone's data being abused for any reason. But again, I come from a culture that has not been systematically abused for medical purposes, nor framed or prejudicially arrested or prosecuted for crimes. Now, there's another side to the coin, and it's very important that all European Americans, including myself, pay attention to this. The European American experience is not the universal experience. Okay, let's think about that for a minute. When I first heard this story, I had to stop and think for a second, and I had to remember this again myself. The European-American experience is not the universal experience. While everyone is glad to see an alleged felon off the streets and in jail, especially a former cop, not everyone is interested in being probed for their DNA. There is one very clear reason for this. Despite ethnicity being relatively equal in the commission of crimes, people of color in the United States are at least six times more likely to be arrested, jailed, prosecuted, convicted of, and imprisoned for crimes than white criminals. And when they are convicted, their sentences are higher, demonstrably higher for the same crime. If you don't believe me, though, seriously, look it up. Google it. White folks get away with things. 
That is a fact of American life. And despite great advancements in science, it is not paranoia for the African-American community to fear that DNA will be used by mistake, confused, or planted, or otherwise used fraudulently to frame people of color for crimes. Furthermore, people of color from slavery through the mid-20th century were treated as lab test subjects without anesthesia and without consent in order to, and I put this in air quotes, advance science. If you want to know more about that, I suggest Googling the name Henrietta Lacks, L-A-C-K-S, the phrase, the father of modern gynecology, the term medical testing at Tuskegee, and reading the book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. Even the title ought to tell you what you need to know. African Americans have endured horrors that European Americans can barely watch in scary movies. If people of color are very concerned about their privacy and their DNA being used for unknown and potentially malevolent purposes, I understand why and I accept it. And if you have been judging this outlook, please do some homework, then stop judging and understand that there are a lot of reasons why people need to protect themselves and a lot of ways to operate in this world. So how do we handle this? First off, your DNA is your property. It's yours to do with as you please. On April 27th, 2018, GEDmatch added a statement to its site that reads, while the database was created for genealogical research, it is important that GEDmatch participants understand the possible uses of their DNA, including identification of relatives that have committed crimes or were victims of crimes. If you are concerned about non-genealogical uses of your DNA, you should not upload your DNA to the database and or you should remove DNA that has already been uploaded. If you upload then, you do so with informed consent to their policies. You know and accept that your DNA might be used for purposes other than genealogy. But if you still want or need to use DNA in your research, what then? If you're comfortable leaving things as they are, fine, be you. But don't be a Jeffrey barging into genealogy groups on Facebook and smarting off about how great you are and how everybody else is un-American because they love killers. Because if you do that, somebody else just might come and tag me. And buddy, if you go there, I will stuff you and trust you like a Thanksgiving turkey. So let's not. I saw a really smart tweet about keeping DNA in play and maintaining privacy that I really liked. It's geared toward people of color, and I want to pass it on to you. I'm quoting Teresa Vega from a series of tweets whose Twitter handle is at RRBB Genealogy. She's a part of Black Progen, and she wrote, I will be advocating that POC use a false name and email specifically created for DNA matches that can't be traced back to them. Given our history in this country and routine abuse by police, it is a must now, short of deleting kits. Unlike others in the genetic genealogy community, 
Black ProGen realizes the impact this may have on POC and may be akin to the distrust generated after the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Tracing our ancestry and using DNA to do so has just been made much harder. Telling us that if we haven't committed a crime not to worry does not add to any conversation. Our communities know otherwise. She knows more than I, so I can only echo her advice. Let me close by saying that this is a nuanced issue. There are layers of consent and ethics and discussions of science outpacing the law coming in future weeks and months. But to begin, please remember that genetic genealogy is the last best hope that African-American researchers have once the paper trail runs out. It is also crucial for adoptees, fosters, and persons of unclear parentage. But for the rest of us, let's be honest, it's fun for dilettantes. When it comes to the African diaspora, however, we're talking about a nation of people who need access without fear. The very method I would have employed to solve that case, because the method seems not only logical, but obvious to me, has potentially destroyed the faith and best hope of millions of people. That is not something to throw off casually. And as an advocate of learning and growing and serving using reparational genealogy, I hope you will agree. If you're interested in this or other topics of POC genealogy, by the way, I highly recommend Teresa Vega and other members of Black Progen on Twitter and YouTube. They have a wealth of information and are always on the cutting edge. You can find their Twitter discussions at hashtag BlackProGen, and there's always something good there. They will continue to discuss the reverberations of the Golden State case and the GEDmatch fallout as the implications become more clear. Thanks so much for listening. If you podcast and you want original theme music like mine, email my good friend Kurt Brady at curtisbrady at yahoo.com. Tell him I sent you. Rock, blues, country, folk, jazz, you name it, he can do it. If you have a concept or a music sample, he can work with it. He writes, plays, and records. We have a new place to hang out. You remember I said top of the show? Meet me at facebook.com slash groups slash from paper to people. It's a place to ask and answer questions for the podcast, meet other podcast fans, and generally talk about things we can get up to here on the podcast. Podcast, podcast, podcast. Go there for exclusive content. I hope it'll be fun. Otherwise, I'm in the usual places with the usual suspects at AncestorsAliveGenealogy.com and on my Facebook page at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. Follow me on Twitter at Ancestors Alive and on Instagram at Ancestors Alive Genealogy. If you have an idea or a question for the mailbag, you can contact me in the Facebook group or at Ancestors Alive Genealogy at gmail.com. And please, if you find value in this podcast, you can support it in two ways. Rate and review it on iTunes, or as I said at the top of the show, become a sustaining financial supporter on Patreon or a one-time supporter using PayPal. I need those positive reviews and that financial support to keep this virtual classroom going. Have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Keep on shrubbing and above all, 
expect surprises.